At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. It's Gene Shepard time. What we've got tonight are a couple of segments. Two segments. Uh, one oh, about seven minutes or so from uh, one program and then about a half hour from the following day's programs uh, uh, from the collection of Bob K one of the original the guy with the original Shepherd webpage and one of the early one of another jazz musician who used to tape Shep that seems to be where a great many of the tapes come from from jazz musicians who uh, had tape recorders back in uh, the early 1960s, and he captured these segments. And, uh, you know, last I almost played this last week, but I hadn't heard it. And only when I was listening to it the other day did I realize that I must have heard it way years ago, because it started to come back to me. Basically, uh, Shepard has been selected to fly in a helicopter over the John Glenn ticker tape parade down Wall Street. So uh, the first segment, uh, he talks about how that's being arranged. Then the next segment is his report after, you know, the night after uh, the parade that morning and everything that happened in between, not what you would expect. And if this program doesn't resonate with events of last week, well, sue me. And thanks to uh, Jim Clavin, we will bring you a little Gene Shepard opening theme, which is not included in either uh, segment of these uh, surviving recordings. Here it is. From the original set of 78s, the Bond Free uh, Polka. Free? Fry? I don't know. Run out and get me a German. share with you uh, many exciting items in the latest edition of uh, Restroom World Supplies and Fixtures for Men's and Ladies Rooms, but by the time I found it we'd about run out of time look at that, commercial toilet seats toilet seat covers, drain openers deodorizers, ah the thrill of getting a new catalog in the old operations department don't eat those tasty urinal cakes
Is there an ah uh or no ah? Uh? How can we tell? It's 1962. Here's Gene. Oh, by the way, the date of the first segment is uh, February 28th, 1962. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what this is a terrible show tonight. I don't know how, how we got onto this. Uh, speaking of terrible shows, uh, I, I, uh, I cannot explain to you how it happened. But today, I got a call from the station here, and they want me to ride in a helicopter above the line of march tomorrow yeah colonel glenn's thing you know the whole business this fantastic folk, folk ritual which we are about to undertake this this tribal celebration and uh, i'm going to be riding in a helicopter above the line there see we're going out to, to laguardia all along the east river drive and up over the line of march yeah and i'm going to be broadcasting this thing now, the thing that intrigues me about this is think of the opportunities. Just think of the opportunities. Think of some of the things you would like to see done by a guy riding in a helicopter a thousand feet, a thousand or more feet over Manhattan at a crucial moment in Manhattan's history. <laughs> you know, the funny part of it was, I don't know why it is they don't trust me around here. I have never once betrayed their trust. But the first thing that the boss said, now look, you're not doing a shepherd show. Now you get up there and you do this. We want you to give it your own special flavor, but shut up. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be up in this helicopter, and I'll tell, tell you what I want. If there's any listener type down there who sees this thing whistle overhead, you'll know that I'm there. And I want a signal of some kind. What can we do to get a signal going here? Anybody got a suggestion? No, no, I, I'm, I'm too high to see that. I, I'd understand it very well. Uh, remember, too, I'm taking films. That's going to be great because I'm going to be up there with a the television camera, you know, and I'm going to be filming this, and if all you guys are making that gesture and it shows up on the TV screen, you know, again, we can't take truth. I mean, believe me, it's going to be terrible again. No, no, it's got to be a nice, honest gesture. No, 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 stop it, you guys. Now, cut it out. This is, you know, this is for women and children. Uh... Uh, seriously, I'm, I'm very serious about this. Uh, it's very exciting, and I'm I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I will be up tomorrow at 10 o'clock. We take off from the heliport over there at uh, at 30th Street. You know, over there, way over on the west side, at the uh, they call it the helipad. Uh, oh yeah, I'm I'm hip on all this type, you know. And I, I'm going to keep saying, all circuits here are go. We return you now to, <laughs> you know, all this uh, machine dialogue. Uh, all that sort of thing. And John Scott's going to be on the ground. We're going to have guys out along the line of march. But the intriguing thing about it is that I'm going to be the only one in all of New York, in fact, in the whole business, who will be stationed up there in this helicopter. And uh, it's a little tiny one. It's a little bell, one of the little bells, you know, with a bubble type. And uh, I hope the weather is good. Now, the uh, cut for Cape Canaveral shot, opening cue. What, what are you pointing at there? He's already done that. Huh? Oh, you're not flying it, are you? I hope not. Not with those glasses. Uh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, oh, Max is in the... Yeah, I've heard you coming up. Yeah, that's Max Stanton, who does all that jazz from Canaveral. Well, I'm going to, uh... 
I'm going to be doing it from here, you see, and uh, out of this helicopter. And, and it got me a little nervous because they gave me this great big camera, this Aeroflex, that weighs over 500 pounds and is pedal-operated. And uh, it's a big water-cooled camera, and uh, it's a giant thing. It has seven turrets on it, and it's got the kind of, it's It's the new one with the retractable wings there, and... And I, I strap it on me, and I look down through it, and I take pictures. Now, I, I'm not exactly sure what pictures uh, I'm going to take, but I'm going to be taking pictures from the helicopter at the same time uh, telling you what's going on uh, at the 1,000 feet. Now, I, I don't intend to try to do a broadcast about uh, Colonel Glenn is now waving at the crowd because from 1,000 feet, Colonel Glenn will look like everybody else, which is kind of nice. I like to see a little perspective brought in this thing. And uh, at 1,000 feet, it's just going to be a gigantic tribal ritual. And I will describe it from that standpoint. Of course, I, you know, I'll, I'll, fist fights are breaking out on 47th Street. They're now clearing Bowling Green. Uh, there is an officer at the corner of 3rd and it's 17th Street down, I believe. He's using a truncheon now on two uh, citizens. Uh, it, it could be very interesting. Now, uh, this starts tomorrow at 10. And if you're near a radio, I think you might find it very interesting. I don't think we'll be on the air much before about 10.30 or probably quarter to 11. Yep. How low can we go? Well, I, I, uh, I hope that the pilot is very sure about that. I, uh, you know, I've seen some, some helicopters that went pretty low. In fact, I saw one that was about 14 feet in the ground once. And, uh, oh, yes, they're very interesting little devices. That's, uh, one thing about a helicopter is that there's nothing to glide on over most of them. When they stop, they really stop, boy. How, how low can you fly? Well, you can fly about four or five inches off the ground with one of those things. Legally? I don't know. It depends on where you are. I've uh, Here in Manhattan, I think the legal uh, level for a helicopter flight is lower than that for a regular aircraft. But, yes, it is. But I do not know what it is. I'll find out tomorrow. 1500 for aircraft? Well, I think we're going to fly lower than that. I don't know. I, I'm serious. I, I just don't know what the, what the legal thing is there about that. I would hate to get pinched. Uh, <laughs> it would be kind of spectacular. But, uh, yes, it would. I can see us having a dog. I suppose uh, there are a lot of questions that uh, people would like to ask. I, I don't know what to say here at this point, except that uh, perhaps you know a little bit about it, or maybe you don't know. I will briefly try to tell you what happened this morning. Well, clearly we are now into the second segment, a half hour from March 1st, 1962. Uh, no beginning and no end. My apologies in advance. And now we return to Gene Shepard reporting on his helicopter flight over the John Glenn ticker tape parade. Uh, as regards our coverage of the parade, you know that last night on the show I mentioned the fact that I was going to be up in a helicopter covering the parade from about a thousand feet over Bowling Green, over Wall Street and Fifth Avenue during the course of March. Well, when I, I left the air last night at midnight, and I went out and I got the papers, I wanted to I wanted to find out a lot about the parade and what was going to happen, who was going to be involved, and so forth. And I, I didn't uh, 
didn't stop reading about it and trying to absorb information about it until maybe 3 or 4 o'clock this morning. And then uh, at uh, 8 or 9 o'clock, I was down here. It was about 8.30. I was down here in the station picking up gear for the flight. Uh, the flight that we were to take was, uh, I, I shouldn't say we, it was just a tiny helicopter. I was to fly in a helicopter that had come up from from Philadelphia. We borrowed a helicopter, uh, a helicopter that is owned and operated by a helicopter service, but the helicopter was leased to a radio station in Philadelphia, WPEN, and, and uh, they very kindly let us use their helicopter. It was a tiny Bell helicopter uh, of the bubble type. You've seen the pictures of these things, a little bubble in, the, in an open superstructure fuselage and uh, little runners on the bottom of it. They're a uh, very strange little machine, but nevertheless, uh, the helicopter arrived here in uh, Manhattan about 10 o'clock or maybe a little before that, around quarter to 10, at the helipad. We have a little uh, helicopter landing pad here in New York at 30th Street, just off of um, 11th Avenue, way down on the river. In fact, it hangs out over the river and is sort of like a dock. This little piece of concrete there, a little tiny office. And about 8.30 or quarter to 9, I was here in the office picking up all the gear. I had with me this big Aeroflex camera that I was going to use to film uh, some 16-millimeter film for television, if there was anything that we could do. Very heavy camera and two or three uh, canisters of film. A big pair of uh, binoculars, which later proved to be probably the most valuable piece of equipment I had with me. And uh, a couple of um, transistor radios for air-to-ground queuing. And all the gear, the, the big heavy radio equipment, which we were to use, which... Uh, which we were to use, which uh, is the actual transmission equipment, was on its way over in a truck and was being strapped in the helicopter when I left here. It's very heavy, and I have to explain that this helicopter has a, 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 just a single seat, really. It's a, a single bench-type seat in it, uh, almost the or the size seat that perhaps would be in a small automobile, perhaps uh, the size of maybe something like an Opal. A little larger than a Volkswagen, but a little uh, smaller than a standard American car front seat. And there's nothing behind you except the big heavy crash pad and the bubble arches over and all the way down under your feet and directly between the pilot and the passenger. Actually, it's a, it's a dual control ship because the controls are on both sides. The pilot sat on the left, I sat on the right, but there is a control column. There's no actual uh, uh, instrument panel the way you find in the regular aircraft. It's a it's a column that rises from the from the deck of the of the ship right up between you and is directly in front of you, but is not in front in the way of, uh, an instrument panel would be. So between me and the pilot, we had all the equipment strapped in, and so much so that it was of almost shoulder level. The the transmitter, the receiver, uh, a lot of um, Queuing gear, and of course, uh, this is a, this is a two-way radio system where I can talk down to the ground, and they can talk back to me. And from time to time, they can switch me onto the air here at WOR. So it's a fairly involved high-frequency equipment. We were using the ship's antenna 
a little uh, transmitting antenna which sticks up out of the control column but does not go off the ship itself. You know, it's interesting. So I, I, uh, I don't want to bog you down with details, but I just want to give you the explanation of what the thing is like. So uh, I left here about, oh, 20 after 9, 9.30, something like that, uh, with one of the men from the station. And he was carrying some of the film. I was carrying the cameras. And it was too heavy to, for one person. So he went with me, and we went downstairs and got ourselves a cab at 1440 on Broadway and proceeded downtown. And we cut over west and arrived at the heliport about 15 minutes later, which would be about quarter to ten. And the uh, equipment was already in. And the boys had run some tests between the uh, helicopter and 1440. You see, our transmitter, the actual transmitter that I contact when I'm flying like that, is in the Empire State Building. And so they had run a few tests already, and everything was working fairly well. And it was bitter cold. Oh, it was cold down there on the river. The wind was blowing across the river, and it was crystal clear. The air was so sharp that it was almost impossible to believe that, uh, that it was going to be that kind of a day. Now, ever since the night before, I had become immersed in the parade, and I was, I was beginning to really feel the parade. Uh, that, that, that's an important part of the story. I, I was uh, ready to report this thing, and it was going to be a big, happy kind of a, an adventure. You know what I mean? Uh, I was looking forward to it. It was like, like, a, like a vacation, like a one-day a ball, really something that I was going to swing with. And I was feeling good about it. Everybody was. We were all having a great time and joking about it. And and uh, it, it was going to be a, 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 a thing that was obviously going to be fun. Well, about uh, at 10 o'clock, uh, we were, I was in the, in the uh, helicopter and we were trying the gear, got back out, went into the little office a couple of times. And about 20 after, about quarter after or 20 after. It's hard to know the time sequence, but it was around 10.15. We got back out to the helicopter and were just about to take off. Our purpose in taking off was to fly directly across Manhattan and then we were going to fly up the East River Drive. And then we were going to go out over Long Island and we were going to go to the Marine Terminal at LaGuardia Airport where Colonel Glenn was uh, was about to land with his party. There were two planes that the party was in. And we had been briefed and had been cleared by the Marine Airport out there to land or at least to, to make an approach so that we could describe the plane coming in. We were going to meet the plane. The plane was due in around 10 minutes to 11. So you can see the sequence of time there. Well, we, we took off, or, or we're about to take off. I was sitting in the seat. The, the pilot was in. He had his... Uh, headphones on, and we were making some last-minute checks with the, the people on the ground as to what we were going to do with film and so forth, when uh, the program director here at WOR, Bob Smith, who had come down with me, and who's, uh, who, by the way, was uh, was responsible for me making the flight in the first place, uh, he, it was uh, the program department's idea to do this, and so we were talking about it, and he left to the office to make a phone call back to the station to tell them, apparently, that we were taking off. And uh, we had buttoned down the hatch. A big bubble has a, has a hatch on both sides, and I had pulled my hatch shut, and the pilot had locked it, when suddenly out of the office came Smith, running. Uh, yeah, he waved a couple of times, and uh, we the, the rotor was already going. 
Uh, it had been running for, say, 10 or 15 minutes prior to this moment. But the rotor was chopping away there, and Smitty came out waving his arms, and we threw open the hatch, and he said, uh, he said, we're in trouble. And I said, what do you mean? He says, we're in trouble. There's been a big crash out at Idlewild. Forget the parade. And it seemed like in an instant I was in the air. I don't know. I don't remember him saying, cover it. I can be perfectly honest. I don't remember him saying, go out there. Uh, all I know is he said, uh, there's a big crash. And the next minute, I'm up in the air. Well, the pilot was was a Philadelphia pilot. He had never flown uh, a helicopter over New York. Uh, he probably had on, on uh, casual occasions, but he wasn't sure as to just exactly where we were. And suddenly, we were 500 feet over the Hudson, and there was a strong cross wind blowing in from Jersey out towards Long Island. It was maybe 20 to 25 miles an hour. And the uh, helicopter started a buck, and I looked out over towards Long Island. I saw a column of smoke. It was so clear that it, uh, the air was so clear that you could see for miles. And all around the horizon, of course, it was a bright, sunny day, was this golden haze. And the buildings were just sharply outlined. You know how New York can be on one of those very unusual days where everything seems to be kind of etched against the skyline. It's just brilliant day. Well, I could see this long, thin column of smoke. Well, it could have been a factory. It could have been anything. But it was the only thing I could see. So I said, go for that. Well, we headed directly across Manhattan, and he he poured on the coal, whatever coal there is in these little things. And we were probably, uh, our airspeed was probably 80 or 85 miles an hour, something like that, with a tailwind. And it just seemed like maybe uh, a second or two later. Well, as soon as I got in the air, I pressed the button to talk back to WOR. And I immediately asked them on the ground, what kind of a plane is this? What's, what, what is this? And uh, the, the man here at the master control said, it's an American Airlines plane. He said, I don't know. Uh, we, we're not sure yet what flight or anything, but it's an American Airlines plane, and it's down in the South Bay area in the, near, near the runway. So uh, we proceeded on. We just continued to move. And then suddenly he broke in and said, it's an American Airlines plane. It's flight number one. And it's the uh, a flight bound. He said at first he thought it was Chicago. It's, a, it's a, a, an astrojet. Well, we by that time, we're very close to the scene. And I couldn't hear a thing because our intercom system was not working at this point. I could not hear the radio program on the ground. And he said, well, I'll give you a cue from here. And we arrived over the scene, and it was a very strange scene because there was nothing there. Uh, nothing in the sense that when you fly out over the bay and these little islands are down below you, it is extremely flat. There are no, no habitation or anything there. You can see the uh, on behind you, off to one side, a little bit out to, out to the bay side. You can see the uh, Floyd Bennett Airport. All the planes are quietly sitting there in the sun. Nothing happening there. And the jets were taking off uh, from Idlewild Airport just in regular regular rotation. They were flying off. A jet took off, and another one was circling, coming in, and another one was, was taxiing along the runway there. And I looked down, and John Roach, the pilot, said, well, are you sure this is? And I said, well, it must be. This is Idlewild. There it is. And we looked down, and, and just at that moment, uh, below us, I saw a big Navy helicopter with a big orange tail scurry along the surface of the water and make a landing on the uh, 
on the bay side of the crash. Now, uh, from the air, the accident looked like this. I'll try to describe it to you as best I can. If you've ever seen the uh, the New Jersey salt marshes where where the dumps are across the river, where you see this long columns of smoke seemingly rising out of out of uh, shallow water. Well, this is the way it looked at first, and then uh, more flame and smoke started to build up, and within a few seconds, the whole surface of the water for, oh, perhaps two or three hundred yards seemed to be on fire. Well, I had my glasses out, and in the meantime, John had contacted the Idlewild Control Tower, and uh, they told him uh, to stay where he was. We were about a mile and a half, actually, uh, air miles from the scene. We were not hovering over it. We were hovering about a mile and a half. Well, I'll tell you, a mile and a half in the air is a very short distance. And we were probably at an altitude of four to 500 feet, hanging out over a small island, separated from the accident by a little piece of water and then another piece of land, and then the accident was all spread out between us and the Idlewild runway. Well, I, I noticed that another plane behind me was taking off from the uh, Floyd Bennett Airport. It was another helicopter, and very shortly thereafter, two or three other helicopters, uh, official helicopters. I was picking up the numbers. There was a police helicopter, one of the big orange or yellow ones, and finally there were three uh, Navy helicopters that I counted at that time began to converge, move back, and, uh, and two or three little surface ships were moving in rapidly towards it. One of them had a, had a was flying an American flag. It was kind of a strange thing. Yes, uh, Oh, by the way, this is WOR, AM and FM, New York. And by the way, this is WBAI, New York, FM only. Now back to Gene Shepard, March 1st, 1962. Well, uh, I got the cue to go ahead and go on the air. And it was such an unreal scene, such a strange sight, that I didn't really know what to say. Uh, I described what I saw as best I could, but... I, I later realized that there was a high, uh, a high state of emotionality that uh, was, was I, I didn't really know that I was feeling it at the time. Although I do realize now, I couldn't tell you three words I said. I don't know what I said actually, uh, but I do know that uh, it was the whole thing seemed so almost surrealistic because you see, at the same time, uh, off over. To our left, Manhattan was sitting out there, and it was it was very bright and shiny and clean. Of the rescue craft that were obviously all moving in on the scene, so we we gained about another two or three hundred feet of altitude, and then at that altitude, I saw one of the most peculiar sights. Uh, I uh, had the glasses and I was looking out over towards Manhattan. John said, "What is that?" And we could see. We could see over Manhattan a very peculiar kind of a kind of a cloud hanging, and and it sounds like I'm inventing this, but I'm just going to have to tell you exactly what happened. I picked up the glasses and I focused on it, and I said it's paper or something flying in the air, or birds, and it was a cloud of uh, confetti that had been caught in an updraft. Apparently, somebody tossed a lot of confetti or paper out of the window long before the Glen Parade got to Lower Manhattan and had been caught in an updraft. And was was sweeping up maybe a thousand feet up in the air towards the sun, and there it was. And down below us was the accident. And another thing that probably added to the unreality of the whole business was a, a great cloud of gulls that 
continued to circle between us and the the uh, the burning wreckage. Now, uh, I couldn't see anything much larger than what looked like perhaps maybe the size of a of a good size uh, pillow, maybe as far as actual pieces are concerned. I could see a large shape in the water. There was a sort of a silver uh, shadow in the water. Now, it didn't look it did not look as though it were solid, though. Uh, I can only say that it looked as though the water at a certain place had a different color where you could see it. In most parts, it was burning and continued to bubble. Well, then the flame suddenly quieted down. There was nothing. And I reported that back to the studio. In fact, I, I think I said that on the air, that the flames appear to be out. And just as I said that, went off the air, there was a, another burst of activity and... It seemed like all the water was on fire again. Uh, apparently, what was burning was the kerosene from the fuel tanks. And uh, the fuel tanks, of course, were underwater. And the only thing I can do is guess that the fuel was floating to the surface. As you know, kerosene floats. And as it got to the surface, uh, it would begin to burn. And this was just another big wave of fire. Well, it was evident that there was nothing that could possibly have survived this. The very instant I saw this, I knew... I just, you just knew there was nothing there. In fact, it was so low and so down flat to the earth that it was almost, it would have been difficult had you been there to believe that there had even been an airplane there. It was that, it was that nothing really to see. Well, I, I was immediately conscious of, of one thing that I was afraid that if I said something that might say there are possibly some people alive there. There would be, there would be all kinds of uh, rumors spread. Uh, I, I, this is the one thing I remember thinking. And uh, on the other hand, I didn't want to say that everyone was dead, because how did I know this? Uh, all I could say was, I can't see how anyone can be alive. I just remember saying that, and that's all I, I tried to say about that, because that's a very difficult thing to say. Remember, these are people who uh, our people. Well, uh, we we uh, began to rise above the scene. We made two or three more broadcasts about the thing, and uh, I noticed one thing that was beginning to happen. I could see a lot of figures moving out into the water. Uh, the police and I could see uh, people wearing asbestos suits and one thing and another, and the glasses were were very sharp and very clear. The air was so clear that I could I could pick things out. I could almost count the grass blades and the reeds. Well, then, the first thing that I saw that really was definite, it, it seemed like on an hour after we got there, I saw them carry something long, and they, they had a big white thing, and I recognized immediately this must have been a body. Uh, and so I reported that back to the studio. I don't think that got on the air. And at that moment, uh, we figured, well, maybe we'd better get out of here because we really have no business here. Uh, we've reported all that we can report from this area, and also we began to have trouble with the helicopter. The generator cut out in the helicopter, and we were losing uh, we were losing current rapidly, especially in the system that we were hooked into with our radio. Our transmissions were beginning to break up. In fact, we were getting reports from the ground that we would tail off at the end of every transmission. So I said, John, well, you better head back for Manhattan. So we, we gained a little altitude, and he headed into the wind towards Manhattan, and uh, we were also running a little short on fuel. These things don't carry that much fuel. 
And we were over the river suddenly. And by an odd coincidence, we arrived at the river almost simultaneously with the arrival of Glenn's parade, which was going downtown on the East River Drive. And John looked down, and we were both looking. He says, there, there you see the police down there. And we could see the police ahead of the, the train of cars. And I knew these people down there had no idea of what had occurred. I was, I was, I was, I was certain of that. And behind me, I, I could see through the bubble, I could see the smoke rising all the time. And ahead of the parade, I could see this great cloud of ticker tape coming up from the, the buildings along the East River Drive as they proceeded downtown. People were throwing things out of the window, and we were following them along the river, going in the general direction of Manhattan Bridge. As a matter of fact, we, we picked up the parade just before Manhattan Bridge, and uh, they, were, they went under the viaduct, and they were just going under the uh, Brooklyn Bridge when a very peculiar thing happened. I broke in, and I was starting to make a transmission when suddenly the whole plane was surrounded by these peculiar fragments, and we were in a cloud of, 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 uh, of confetti, literally confetti that had been caught by an updraft, <laughs> and we flew right through it. And uh, John didn't say much throughout the last five or ten minutes of this, and in fact, we, we didn't talk at all uh, when we began to really see what was happening. And it was at that moment that I saw probably... Well, I saw a sight which I will never forget. Of course, most things uh, you don't really forget, actually. You just uh, don't remember them. <laughs> That's different from, from forgetting. But this is uh, truly a scene that I, I know I can't possibly forget because directly ahead of us was the Statue of Liberty. And the sun was shining on the statue. And between the mainland of Battery Park and the statue was a circle line boat and all the people were waving because they could see the parade has just arrived and was making that big right hand turn around Battery Park and they were heading towards Bowling Green and going on up to the city hall and by that time the whole end of the island was, was insane I could see great clouds of confetti rising and, uh, and long streamers of paper and the wind was catching it that's something you probably don't see when you're on the ground and you're you're involved in the ticker tape parade. A lot of this this debris rises and continues on up because of the of the shape of the buildings and the canyon-like effect. It just goes up into the updraft and she goes on. Well, directly off to my left, I could still see this smoke rising. Great column of smoke. And we were flying at such an altitude and the air was so clear that we could actually still see the flames from where we were. And I could see the helicopters coming in and down below us was the parade. And all the people were cheering, and directly ahead was this statue. And for one brief moment, it was all there. I mean, everything was there that you could possibly uh, experience. Well, we, we uh, hovered for a moment over Battery Park, looking directly north, uh, up, uh, I suppose, that Center Street. What, what is that street that goes directly out of the Battery, heads right up north? where the ticker tape parade began. I, I think it's Center Street. I'm not sure. But it, it uh, is the main the wall, I guess. It's wall. And we could see this trim. It must have been Center. I don't know. It doesn't make any of us laugh yet, one of them. So it, it doesn't matter. Technicalities, forget it. But I could see this great river of, of confetti. And we could see the cars, tiny cars moving up. And all the way on up for, oh, it looked like miles, I could see the confetti just flying and moving 
It was as though I was looking at a long white caterpillar, just wiggling and moving, uh, uh, heading all the way on up. It seemed to disappear in the general direction of, of the George Washington Bridge. But for some reason, it, it, it didn't seem real. Nothing seemed real now at this point because the parade, it was as though I was looking at a movie or something that had no relationship to me. And likewise, I, I have to say this is probably true of the, of the, uh, the, great, the, the terrible accident we had just seen. Well, John is looking down, and he said, he says, this is an unbelievable thing. He said, uh, uh, how, can, how can you tell anybody how this looks? I said, I, 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 said, I don't know. And with that, I, I got in touch with the, with the ground, and I said, look, we're running out of, we're running out of current. We're not going to be able to broadcast anymore. Our generator's out, and we're going to have to come down, so would you please get a battery or something down to 30th Street? We're coming down. And uh, we proceeded along the Hudson. We were watching the parade from an angle now, and we were flying over the ships that were in berth down there. We were maybe flying at an altitude of, oh, perhaps a 1,000 feet, something like that. And we flew without saying anything. It was a very strange moment in this aircraft. We flew for a while, and then... Uh, I don't recall whether it was John or whether it was me that said it because we were both uh, in a very peculiar state. I remember somebody said, I don't think they would believe it. Nobody really believed this. And it seemed like the next instant we're coming down and somebody said to me over the intercom, you see our radio, our incoming radio was still working. I couldn't talk back by now. Somebody says, well, drop down at the pad and there are people there who want to talk to you. A press conference. Be ready for this. What press conference? What? And we, we landed, and a lot of men started to run towards the uh, helicopter. And I immediately was taken into the office, and they said, well, well uh, Cleveland was on the telephone. The next minute, I'm talking to Cleveland. I said, what do you want? There was a guy from Cleveland on the, on the phone, and uh, <laughs> I don't know how they got the heliport, but it was a man from Cleveland. He says, this is uh, Ron somebody at WERE in Cleveland. Would you describe what you just saw? I said, Cleveland, what are you... Uh, Cleveland. And, and so I told him what I said. He says, thank you. That was a very good tape. I said, thank you. And I hung up, and somebody then said to me, well, of course, you know this was broadcast uh, by the BBC. They picked this up by the BBC, and uh, it was in Los Angeles. I couldn't... By now, I was totally out of focus. And somebody had the radio on, and I could hear Eileen Francis talking. And... Uh, there was a man from Life uh, standing next to me, and he had a big jacket on, and he had just come back from over the scene and apparently taken some pictures. And uh, he said, I don't know. And we just stood there in the cold. And that's, that's the story. Now, what else can you say about it? I was down, and I was in a cab, and the accident and everything I had seen didn't seem real. And you know, it wasn't until 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon that it began to soak through what this had all been about. Uh, I've got, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's very it's very difficult to talk about this. And it's... Uh, Difficult in a way that uh, I haven't often encountered. Very strange. And uh, getting back to Earth here and coming back up to the studio, I 
I found myself suddenly over at the Herald Tribune. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been in the Herald Tribune in my life. And uh, I was talking to a girl. She was taking dictation. And uh, this went on for, it seemed like, ten seconds. You lose all, all time concept. And I finished dictating what I was dictating, and she said, well, I'll have a transcript for you in a few minutes. The transcript, oh, okay. And uh, I suddenly had a, a great desire, and I'm not a drinking man. I'll tell you that. I'm not. I suddenly said to Sid Bacall, who was with me here, you know, I'd like a drink, Sid. And I said, what time is it anyway? He said, I don't know. It must be 1.30 or something. 2 o'clock, I can't figure. And, and there was a clock, and it was now 2, and all this had happened. So uh, I, uh, the next thing I knew, I had an old-fashioned in my hand. <laughs> of all things, at this time of the day. So I found myself eating a maraschino cherry and eating some garbage. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a bad man, uh, was it? An old-fashioned was pretty good. So... Uh, the, the guy at the city desk says, hey, this is a pretty good story. He said, do you want to correct the transcript? So I, I'm, I'm writing there. He says, well, now, don't knock out that bat there. I don't like that bat. So, okay. Well, the story is in the trib tonight. Do you want to read the story? It's in the, it's in the, the story. The trib just came out. Uh, somebody gave me a copy of it when I was coming in here. It's in tomorrow morning's Tribune. But the whole story can't be there. Just impossible to be there. And uh, so... Uh, what else can I say? Is there anybody have have a question? Uh, the uh, <laughs> yes, a lot of questions. I have so many questions, but I I can't answer my own questions. I don't know how I could answer yours. I probably could answer yours better than mine. But my questions are of a, are of a nature that uh, I I won't know how to answer for maybe a, another six or seven months, perhaps, because. You know, it was, it was interesting. I, I, I had, I had a, a thing that crossed my mind when we were flying back towards Manhattan. And it was, it was the phrase, the theater of the absurd. Well, that's where it ends. That segment of Gene Shepard from March 1st, 1962 covering the John Glenn Parade and what it turned into. That wraps up this morning's Mass Backwards. I've been Max Schmied. Thanks for listening. Golden Age Radio, 7 o'clock Sunday night. I'll be back next week, 4 to 6. Mass Backwards. Tomorrow, 3.30 to 6. Vic the Bruiser, Rock'em Sock'em, Rock and Roll. The greatest music program in the world. Tune in, don't miss it, and stay tuned for Wake Up Call coming up next, right here. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.